We'll turn with me this morning, if you would, over to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Been spending a lot of reading in Isaiah over the last few months or so. But uh, Isaiah 49, I was looking at these passages this morning. And... uh, pray that the Lord will give me uh, words this morning to be able to speak of Christ. That's who we want to talk about this morning. That's who we always want to talk about, whether we're in the Old Testament or whether we're in the New Testament. It's all about Christ. So we want to find Christ in all that we talk about. He'd be pleased to give us that. Isaiah chapter 49, we'll start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 10, and we'll probably only get through, you know, six or seven verses more, more than likely the morning. This morning, as the Lord directs, we, however He directs, may get less, may get more. Don't know, but uh, at least those are the ones that I'm uh, going to read and see where we go from there. It says, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from afar. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught. And in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him through Israel, oh, excuse me, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall uh, also shall worship, because the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves, they shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger, nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them, for he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. Heavenly Father, we come now and we ask that you be with us this morning. We pray that you would set before us Christ Jesus, and that you would just give me utterance, Lord, I pray that you would open up your word today in the hearts of your people. I 
pray that they'll be taught of God. Lord, we pray that today that Christ will be glorified and honored. We're so grateful today, thankful for his salvation. We're thankful for forgiveness of sins, and we're thankful for justification, for sanctification that's in and through Christ Jesus. Lord, we know that we are undeserving. We know that we're sinners. We know that we cannot keep your commands. We know that we cannot keep your law. We know we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. But here today we stand as your people, righteous before you because of our substitute, Jesus Christ. And we're here to glorify and praise his name today. We're here to shout praises to him because he has accomplished all that God has set before him. That he has done all that is required for justice. He has done all that is required for righteousness. And Father, he has granted that unto us as his people, and we are so grateful for that today. We stand humble today because we have been elected of God. We boast not in ourselves. We know that it is only by your pleasure that we have been chosen if we be his. And Father, we know that it is only by your pleasure and your grace and your mercy that we have received this salvation. And even today, if we hear and learn and and grow And grace and knowledge from you is only because of your grace that you have given and extended to us even today. So, Father, Lord, we just thank you for all that you have done for us. And we just pray, Lord, that today Christ will be glorified in our service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, rather than on the outlook on this thing, you would think, of course, this was written by the prophet Isaiah. And uh, you would think on the outset, whenever you first began to look at this, you would think that Isaiah is talking about himself. That this is a, uh, a, in the aspects of God raising him up as a prophet, as a preacher and evangelist, to preach to the people of God and to be a servant to the people of God. I mean, that's what we hear here. You know, he said, Listen, O wiles unto me, and hearken ye people from afar. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name, and he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. Hath he hid me, and he hath made me a, a polished shaft and a quiver, and his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. We think, well, this obviously is talking about uh, Isaiah coming and being the uh, the prophet of God to the people and speaking these things to the people and preaching to the people and keeping them straight and all that kind of stuff. But brethren, as we look at this, we see as once again, as we always do, these things are speaking about the Lord Jesus. While this was actually something that actually happened, it was a physical thing, it was an historical thing, a historical event, this was real life, it's not just a story. It was really something happened. Isaiah was a real man that God raised up as a prophet who spoke to a real nation of Israel that was going through a lot of stuff. And, and, and God sent Isaiah as a prophet over those people to proclaim the things of God to them during that time. But brethren, let's not forget that whenever we speak of natural things, whenever we speak of physical things, in God's word. Remember the Bible says that these things, speaking of the Old Testament, these things were written for our understanding, for our learning. So the things of the scriptures, especially the Old Old Testament, are written for our understanding that we might understand Christ more. He said, lo, in the volume of the book, it is written to me, speaking of Christ. 
He said all these things from Genesis, all from Moses and the prophets, all the things that are written in there are written about Christ. And so if we start taking these things and we only look at them in their wooden, literal, natural, uh, physical sense, then we're going to miss the beauty of the of the uh, uh, spiritual nature of these things. Now, we're not going to miss them if the Lord teaches us that. But uh, may our minds always be asking the Lord for that spiritual understanding, that hidden manna uh, that, uh, that comes from God alone. But we see here, this isn't speaking about Isaiah. This here, brethren, is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look with me if you would, and I'm going to kind of go through the, these verses here, and just because I, I, as I read this, I just keep thinking of other places in Scripture where this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, whenever you get to thinking about it, brother, um, whenever you start looking at all the passages of Scripture and all the things that were said about Christ in the Old Testament, and you start getting into the New Testament, you see all the things that Christ did and how it was the fulfillment of these things in the Old Testament. As he said he did, he came and fulfilled all the things that the Lord had given him to do. That all the things that, uh, that were prophesied, all the things that were, that were uh, laid out in the Old Testament, Christ fulfilled all those things. I mean, all those problems. I can't remember. I've heard some people say, and I don't know this to be a fact or not. I don't know what the, what the numbers are, uh, to be honest with you. But I've heard there's been like over 700 prophecies in the Old Testament that uh, had to do with, with just coming the coming of Christ in his ministry that he fulfilled to a T. Well, brethren, it may be more than that. It may be less than that. I don't know what the number is, but I do know one thing, what the truth is, is that Jesus came and fulfilled all that was said of him. He didn't miss anything. He fulfilled every jot and every tittle of the law. He came and did all that the Lord required of him because he said he did. And if he said he did, then we know it's true because he's God and he cannot lie. He said, I have come to do thy will, O Lord. He said, I have done all that you have given me to do. I have finished everything that you have done. Whenever he died on that cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't left, leave anything undone. So whenever we speak of Christ and we speak of what he has done and what he has accomplished, he has accomplished everything in God's purpose. He has accomplished everything in God's predestination that has to do with the with the people of God and their salvation. And so nothing is left undone. Now I also will say that Jesus Christ is also the one who is carrying out the rest of God's predestinating order. Everything else in God's purpose, unrelated to the redemption and salvation of God's people, is also being carried out by Jesus Christ because Jesus is also the one who the Bible says that all things are under his control, that all things are by his power, that all things are un, in, by his constraint. The Bible says that that he that by everything it consists of him. He is the one that is holding all things together. He is the one who is bringing it in the in the uh, revelation. The Bible says that he is the one who took the scroll and was the only one worthy to take the scroll and to unroll it and to bring forth the things that were found therein. And listen, brethren, I believe, and I might be wrong with this, and brothers that are listening or watching or whoever might be able to correct me on this if they have scripture for that. 
uh, I believe that that scroll that he's unrolling because it said that it was written on the front and the back, therefore identifying it as a legal document, I believe that that was the purpose of God, his decree, his official decree that he made before the foundation of the world. And in that decree, he decreed and predestinated every action, everything that would ever take place. And Jesus Christ is the one whom God has set forth to govern over the kingdom of God and over all of his creation. And he is bringing about all things. The Bible says, of him, from, uh, from him, and to him, through him, and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. He is the one who is carrying out all of his purpose. He said, I will do all my purpose. I will do all my purposes. So we speak of Jesus Christ being the servant of God, and we see that here in our passages here. Verse 3, he said, And he said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. We know that that word Israel there is a direct uh, uh, a direct name for Jesus Christ. He is the true Israel. And in him, because of us being in him, we are Israel. We are the children of Israel. We are his people. We are the true Israel of God, the spiritual Israel of God. He is our head. We are his descendants. We are his children. We are those true Jews, those true Israelites, uh, who are the Israelites in spirit. Okay, this is a spiritual thing. Again, we're talking about a spiritual thing. He said, Thou art my servant, O Israel. So we see that we're talking about Jesus Christ here. But I look here at the very beginning of this, and it already begins to speak of Jesus Christ. It says, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye, people from afar, the Lord, here it is, the Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he mentioned, made mention of my name. Now, one of the things that I think of whenever I read that is Matthew chapter 1. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1 with me, if you would. Excuse me. Matthew chapter 1. Look with me, starting to read in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But when he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." So now back in Isaiah, we look at that. He says, The Lord hath called me from the womb, and the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. He was already named before he was born. While he was still in the womb of Mary, God had given Christ his name. His name shall be called Jesus. He wasn't going to be called uh, Isbar. He wasn't going to be called Yehu. He wasn't going to be called Gubagoo. He wasn't going to be called any other name. 
He was going to be called Jesus. That was God's determined name for him. Now, of course, we know we're saying this in English. We're using names that are common for us that are translated into our names, our understanding. But the point is, is God gave him that name, that name Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua, however you want to say it in whatever language you want to say it in. He gave him that name because there was a reason behind that name. The reason was because he shall save his people from their sins. That's what the name meant. The name Jesus means Savior. The name Jesus means the one who saves. And we see here in Isaiah, he said, The Lord hath called me from the womb before he was ever born. God had already set him up. Matter of fact, we find in the, I believe it's in the psalmist, it might be in Proverbs, my mind is kind of fuzzy on that right now. But the Bible says that he has set me up before the foundation of the world, that he has set me up before the mountains were laid, before anything was laid. God called him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the the Savior of his people. God already did that. And before he was ever placed in that womb by the Holy Spirit of God, before he was ever born from Mary, God already had purpose from the foundation of the world that Christ Jesus would be the servant of God that would redeem the people of God. He would be the mediator. He would be the prophet, the priest, the king. That the, He would be the one that, that all the government would hang on his shoulders. And he would be the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God, but yet he would be the prince of peace. He would be that everlasting father that would come in flesh. And that everlasting father that came in flesh was the one who saved his people from their sin. And that was before he was ever born. And so we see here that the word of God, it is true throughout all scripture, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it speaks of him. He had made mention of my name. What did he mention about his name? I think of that. What did he make mention of whenever he said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus? Whenever he gave him that name, he also gave him the purpose for why Jesus came. He also tells us the reason that Jesus is here. Why did God manifest himself in flesh? Why did God condescend to from the God who the Bible says that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? This invisible God that is everywhere. He's, a, he's, he's everywhere. We use the word omnipresent. That means that, you know, we... The Bible says that where two or three are gathered, he's there in his name. But, brother, he's not here. He's out there, too. He's on the other side of the world. Wherever two or three are gathered, he's with them as well. But he's not just with them. The Bible says, if I ascend into heaven, there you are. If I descend down in hell, there you're there also. The Bible says that there isn't anywhere that we go can go that we're not outside of the presence of where God is. And how can that God who the Bible says is holy, who the Bible says is righteous, would come in human flesh. Well, the reason why is because he shall save his people. He came as a servant for his people. Look at verse 2. He says, And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword, 
He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Do you recall other places in the scripture where he speaks that? That speaks of Christ this way? I do. I remember in Hebrews. I believe it's chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12, look what it says there. It says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What is that talking about? It talks about that the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It means that nothing is going to be hidden from God. That His Word is going to be able to discern all things. He knows all of men's hearts. He knows all of men's deeds. He knows everything about everything. He is all wisdom. He knows everything. And whenever He speaks, He speaks truth. Therefore, whenever He speaks and He declares to the reprobate, their sin and their un, unjustness and their deservedness of, uh, of, uh, of uh, wrath, nobody's going to be able to say a word because he speaks truth. He is able to discern all the thoughts and the, and the things in our minds. His word is able to get past the falsities. We may be something on the outside, but the word of God pierces into our heart. We know that we are wrong. We know that we are sinful. We know that we have failed Him. We know when we are lying. We know that when we are being uh, 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 hypocritical. Whenever we're acting to be as Christians, and we know on the inside that we that we uh, uh, are are not acting like Christians. You know, <clears throat> not that I'm here to tell you how to act or anything like that. That's the Spirit's job to do. But <coughs> but the fact is is that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces. It's truth. And truth cannot be uh, uh, brought down. Now, we live in an age today, and I don't mean to get off on too much of a tangent here, but we live in an age today where truth has been twisted. Truth is being suppressed. Truth is being ignored. Truth is being rejected outright. We live in a society where people are making up and saying this is the truth when it's not. Brethren, this right here is the only truth that there is. Scholars don't have truth. Seminaries, colleges, the highest degree of colleges, your astrophysicists, your lawyers, Congressmen, all your professionals out there, they don't have truth. They have perceived truth. But this right here is the only thing that's the truth. And this right here, if it says something, then anything that is contrary to that is not truth. It's falsity. It's lies. And so if the Bible says something, it doesn't change with society. 
It doesn't change. God does, doesn't change. Now some will say, well, well, you're saying that the things doesn't change with the times or with society, but yet you preach that there was a time of the law and then there's a time that we're not under the law and all that kind of stuff. Brother, it doesn't change because God's eternal covenant existed even whenever the law was going on in the Old Testament. Not to mention the law in and of itself was never given to the Gentiles. The law was fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, there, the purpose for the law and everything was to bring people to Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. So for his people, they are no longer under law. So it isn't that God has changed or times have changed or now God's stuff is being, you know, uh, uh, catered to today's society. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that even though we are not under the law, even though that we are under grace, God does not change. Therefore, his principles do not change. The truth of things do not change. And whenever he speaks, his word is sharp. His word can discern. It weeds out the lies. I mean, whenever you preach the truth, it weeds things out. Whenever you preach in a congregation, you keep preaching the truth, eventually those who are unbelievers, those who do not believe the truth of God, it's going to weed them out because they're not going to like it. It's not going to be savor. What's the word? It's not going to be a savor to them. They're eventually going to want something else to eat. That's why we see all these big giant mega churches and everything. Those people, they like to eat on entertainment, don't they? They like to have their ears tickled. They don't like the Word of God. They don't like the preaching of Christ alone. They don't like the preaching of, uh, of, of just Jesus every week. They don't like the preaching of just the gospel every week. They want to hear other things. They want to tell... Tell me how to get rich. Tell me how to be profitable. Tell me how to get healed. Tell me how to get out there and live for the Lord so that I can get out there and be the, God's champion. Tell me how to reach a thousand souls in a week. You know, how I can get more stars next to my name in Sunday school. They want to hear these things. They want worship teams and rock stars and rap stars and all these people up on their stages to do all their worshiping for them so they can say they came and worship, but yet it was somebody else who supposedly did it. They want people in there just to give them the full entertainment. They don't want Christ. They don't want the gospel. They don't want God as the Bible teaches God. They want somebody else. But the people of God, they desire these things. They desire these things. Now, I've gotten so far off track, I don't even know where I'm at now, so let's just go back to the scriptures. Lost my train of thought. <clears throat> he says, He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. Remember, give me just a second, let me look this verse up. Make sure it's in the same spot where I thought it was. Yeah, turn over with me to Revelation. Chapter 19. Verse 
Revelation chapter 19, we also see this spoken of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, you're going to Revelation. This is speaking of what's going to happen in the end times. This is, going to, this is what's going to happen during the tribulation. This is what's going to happen during the thousand-year reign or something like that. You know, brother, listen, the book of Revelation, of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, this is talking about now. It's not talking about some way on in the future beyond after some rise of an antichrist and the rapture and the seven year tribulation and thousand year reign and all this stuff this is speaking of the revelation of Jesus Christ that was written to people at that time to give them warning and to give them comfort of things that was soon to take place and brethren it is still going on it is cyclical through every generation through every age the church of Jesus Christ is experiencing the things that we see in the revelation and the purpose of the revelation is to give comfort to the children of God that Jesus Christ is on the throne. That he is controlling all things. Why do you think right in the smack dab middle of the whole entire book we see the one who steps up on the throne and takes that scroll that I was talking about? The one who is given the honor of holy and worthy because he is the one who is carrying all this stuff out. He is the one who lets. He is the one who does not let. He is the one who releases plagues and famine, pestilence, death. He's the one. Who's the rider of the four horsemen? It's Christ. He's the one. But he's also the one on the white horse. The one who comes in who has a name on his thigh that no one knows. He's the one that comes in that, that is in control of everything. Listen, brethren, the revelation is about Jesus Christ and his total control over all creation. And it's a, written as a comfort to the people of God that we have been built into a city that the Lord our God dwells in. So whenever we read these things, we need to read looking for Christ... And if it does so say, his relation with his people. But look at verse 15. He says, and out of his mouth, and I, let me just back up because it's describing the Lord Jesus here. Let me just back up to verse 1. It says, and after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. We see that found in our passage as well. I didn't even think about that. I'll get to that though here in a minute. <clears throat> True and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Brethren, this is talking about the false churches. It's talking. It's not talking about just the government. It's talking about that false church system, false religion. All those things that set, us, set itself up as worshiping God <clears throat> that is not according to God's word. That is not the true gospel. Everything that is not the true gospel, that is not the true church, is false. You're either true, following God's word, or you're not. It's false. And everything that is false, the Bible says, is antichrist. The Bible says that there will be many, many antichrists. Anything that is against Christ. There are churches that are antichrists. 
Why? Because they don't hold to the truth. They don't hold to the God of the Bible. They don't hold to the Messiah of the Bible. They have all other kinds of God and Jesus and salvation plans, but they don't have the one that's out of God's Word that is true. Christ is said here, let's continue on, He says, And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever. And the four and twenty elders and four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Now remember, it's Christ that's on the throne, by the way. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his saints, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And as I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunder, and saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Who is the Lord God omnipotent that's on the throne? It's Jesus Christ. It's God manifested in the flesh. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Now, I'm just going to make a little side note there. Don't pass by that. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. You might mistake in that verse right above there that she has made herself ready and think, there you go. It's free will, free choice. We have to make ourselves ready. If we don't make ourselves ready, then we won't get there. But look what verse 8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. What is the righteousness of the saints? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of the saints. And who is granted Christ's righteousness as our righteousness? It is God. God has granted that our righteousness is His righteousness. I don't mistake to think that I'm saying that God and Jesus are two different people. They're the same people. But what I'm saying is Jesus in His in His role as mediator, Jesus as His office as prophet, priest, and king, as surety, has secured all those things. God in the flesh came and did those things. God making the plan. God Himself bringing and doing the deeds. He did it. But he is the one that granted that we should be arrayed in fine linen. Why? Because he had purchased that righteousness for us by his blood. <clears throat> so it was granted that she should be arrayed. So how did we make ourselves ready? We didn't make ourselves ready by our own works. By faith we looked unto Christ at what he had already done for us. Verse 9, And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are they. Not owed are they. It isn't something that we're owed, but we're blessed to be a part of that marriage supper. It's a gift. It's by grace that we are included in that number. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See that thou, see thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that, that have 
that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called, what is it? The Word of God. Now look what it says here in just a second. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Now, I grew up thinking this now, and I know, especially as a young kid, we get the imagery here and we start thinking this. But listen, I've seen people make illustrations of this. Dispensationalists that make illustrations of this because they take everything here to be wooden literal whenever they think that Jesus is coming, that his eyes are really going to be fire shooting out of his eyes, that he's going to have all these crowns wrapped around his head, that he's going to come on this horse and his vesture is going to be dipped in blood, dripping in blood. And that's that whenever it says here that the sword came out of his mouth, there's going to be the sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, I've actually seen people that actually believe that's the one. Brethren, this is imagery. Again, write these things. They're signified. That's what he told John. These things are going to be signified. They're going to be symbols. They're going to be signs and symbols that I'm going to give to you. They're going to be images, imagery. It's going to be it's going to be apocryphal writing. It's not going to be literal writing. It's going to be apocryphal writing, which means it's going to be in 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 visions of of, of uh, uh, you know, just like whenever we we look at stuff like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know those shows that was written. Those were written to get and in all this fantasy imagery but there was something that was supposed to be behind it is talking about when it talked about the lion in that thing it was to be Jesus you know all that stuff and I'm not I'm not promoting C.S. Lewis or anybody like that but I'm just trying to give you an idea of what it's talking about when it says apocryphal writing it's talking about writing in imagery and this is what we see here and it says out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress with the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so we see here that out of his mouth, the word, his name is the word of God and out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword. What is coming out of his mouth? It's his word. It's his judgment. It's what he says. What God says, what Christ is speaking, whenever the, he came and he preached, the Bible says that whenever he preached, that those men said, this man preaches like nobody we've ever heard before. Whenever this man preaches, he preaches with authority. Whenever he says the things he says, it's not like the Pharisees, it's not like the Judaizers, I mean the, the Sadducees uh, and all those other uh, leaders and, 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 and men. It's not like them at all. <clears throat> Whenever this man speaks, he speaks with authority. Why? Because he is the Word of God. He is 
Whatever God's thoughts and intents are, whatever God's decree and purpose is, it is embodied in the man Jesus Christ. And whenever he speaks, he speaks the purpose, the, the, the decree, he speaks the wisdom of God. Everything that is, I mean, that, what are words? All words are, are thoughts made vocal, right? And he said, the thoughts of my heart are going to be made known to all generations. How is that going to be made known? By the Word of God. And the Word of God is the one who came and inspired those writers to write these things down. What? The words of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Who is it that gave that inspiration? It was Jesus Christ. He's the Word of God. He's not the third or second person in the Trinity. He is God. And that's part of who God is, is that God has given us His Word. And that Word was made flesh. It came in a body. And it spoke in a body. Instead of by inspiration to the ears, or however He did it, to those writers in the Old Testament and to the New Testament, He came and He spoke Physically through his own mouth. I'm getting way off on a lot of different tangents here, but anyway, the thing is, is whenever it speaks here, he says, He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword, meaning that all judgment, all truth was going to be in him. We just read in Revelation that with him came judgment. He brought judgment. What he says is going to be. Whatever he judges, that's going to be the judge. There's not going to be any argument. There's not going to be any pleading. There's not going to be any begging. There's not going to be any uh, uh, bribing. We're not going to bribe God. Whenever Jesus gives judgment, the judgment falls. Whenever Jesus speaks, whatever he speaks is truth. But what else about the sharp sword? The Bible says it was like a two-edged sword. Very sharp. There is an either side is going to cut you, right? <coughs> so we see that this is speaking of the of Jesus Christ and what it says about Him as the Word of God. He is the Word of God in that He has all of truth behind Him. He has all of God's judgment behind Him. He has all the purpose of God behind Him. That he is the one fulfilling all the things of God. Therefore, he will receive all the praise. He will receive all the glory. Why? Because he is all of God. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. So that means that God who is invisible has manifested himself now in flesh. And in flesh... He continues to dwell. The Bible says that whenever he went away, he's going to come back just like he went away. That he's went away and he's went away in that new spiritual body that was resurrected from the grave and that spiritual body is going to be the spiritual body like the, the ones he's going to make for us. Therefore, we'll be conformed to his image. We will be like him. How are we going to be like him? Because we who are natural are going to put off the natural and then we're going to put on the spiritual. We're going to be raised in a spiritual body. And therefore, we'll be like Him. No more will we have a sinful flesh. 
He says, In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. Now that polished shaft is talking about an arrow. Okay? And again, whenever you take something and you polish it down, what does that do? You know, you look at these arrows today and how sleek and how polished and stuff they are. What does it do? It makes it penetrate even further, right? If you take an old wooden arrow with a rock, carved out rock point, and shoot it at something, it's going to go in, but it may not go in all the way. It may not go in as far as it could if it was a sleek, shined, smooth arrow tip. I mean, it goes cuts through. It may go all the way through you. And so what is he saying here? All he's doing is adding on to the imagery of what it's saying about him that he, as Christ, he's going to penetrate. He's going to go to the very bone and marrow, as we see. There's nothing going to be hidden from him. There's nothing that's not going to be uh, uh, not revealed. Everything's going to be uncovered. And that by his word, by him, all things will be judged. Verse 3 says, And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. My thoughts there uh, went to what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. <clears throat> he said, uh, Well, it's just about time when we have to have to pick up with this next week. In John chapter 17, look at verse 1. It says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the Lord, uh, world was. So here we see, he says, uh, in whom I will be glorified. How was God glorified? He was glorified in Christ Jesus. God is glorified in Christ Jesus, in Him, in God being manifested in the flesh. Matter of fact, I can take you to some other places, especially John chapter 1, and we can see that the glory that we see is the glory. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Who did they beheld? They beheld God manifested in the flesh, who was Jesus Christ. What was the glory they beheld? The glory of God being manifested in flesh. That was the glory. Glorify thou me with the glory I had before, though. What does Jesus say in there? This body thou hast prepared for me for a specific reason, that it might die. But the body that I will continue in, that spiritual body, is that body that you gave me that I took up before the foundation of the world, whenever you set me up before the world was. In Revelation, the Bible says that he was a uh, the first creation of God. What was that? What is he talking about there? He's talking about that body, the manhood of Christ Jesus was laid and brought up before him before anything ever was, because it was in that body that God 
created the world. It was in that body that God spoke to his people. It was in that body that he came down and he manifested himself to all those Old Testament people that we read about. It was in that body that Jesus Christ sits on the throne and he rules and he reigns. It's in that body. But a body he had prepared also for him whenever he came to die. And that body he took on whenever the Bible says that he submitted himself unto the Father and became like unto his brethren. But whenever he resurrected, in John 17, he said, Restore to me that glory that I had with you before the world began. Remember in John chapter 1, verse 1, said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in his manhood, and he was God in his deity. So how is he glorifying God? He's glorified, or God is glorified in the manifestation of God in flesh. God glorified himself through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Look at verse 4. He said, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught. Now at first, whenever I read this, I thought, wait a minute. Now how can this be speaking of Jesus? Because he said he labored in vain. The Bible says that the God's word will not return void. It won't be in vain. It says that Jesus was, is, you know, successful. That he ain't going, I mean, Jesus did something in vain. It says, I've spent my strength for naught and in vain. But, if we look at this, as we should throughout all scripture and take all scripture into account, this isn't Jesus saying that he did something in vain and that he didn't accomplish something, but he is giving revelation of something that actually took place. He says, Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught and in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work is with God. Look if you would, and, and this is, is, is what the verse that comes to mind. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And look with me if you would at verse 11. He says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The Bible said that he was uh, despised and rejected. That he was... Uh, that he was uh, calmly and that no one would even whenever they looked upon him he, they wouldn't even think nothing about him Okay, there was nothing attractive about Christ Jesus and this is what I think is being said back here in Isaiah verse 49 is that he's saying listen I have labored but on in their behalf those religious leaders his people who the Bible said they received him not now his elect did his elect received him, but those people received him not. And I think that's what it's talking about. He labored, but it was in vain to them. He labored, but it was for not for them. You say, well, Mike, I think you're making a pretty good stretch about that. <clears throat> Look at verse 5, though. This is the reason why I say that. I think you can't divorce verse 4 from verse 5, and you can't divorce that from the rest of Scripture. 
we know that Lord Jesus Christ didn't do anything in vain. And we know that he didn't do anything and it come to naught that he did it. But yet those people for whom it was not intended, to them all the preaching that they ever will hear is for naught because they will not be saved. For all the people that hear all the gospel message, it's for naught, it's in vain for them because they will not hear. They weren't intended to be heard. Right? They never was intended to be heard. Or to hear. And here's the reason why I say that this is spoken in a way which is meaning not Jesus making a failure, but Jesus actually speaking of those for whom this is not intended. Because in verse 5 it says, And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel, not as a nation, or as a nation, be not gathered, though Israel be not gathered as a nation, as a whole people, look what it says, yet I shall be glorious in the eyes of my God, shall be my strength, and he said, it is a light thing that Thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. See, it wasn't intended for all Israel. He said, though Israel, has, though Israel be not gathered, it looks like I've done something in vain. It looks like I've done something for naught. It looks like not everybody's believing. Not everybody's believing that you're the Messiah. Not everybody's coming to Jesus. But he's saying, I, that was not the purpose for whom I came. He said that it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. And that right there, brethren, I think is corroborated through Scripture. Look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 32. It says, for my verse 30, for my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So Christ has come as a light not only to the to the people of Israel, but a light to the Gentiles, which we also see in our passages here where he says that in verse 6, that he is a light to the Gentiles. But he has come as a light unto the Gentiles. Now, with that being said, look at Acts 13. And verse 47. He says, For who hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. So here we see that Christ is not only a light to Israel, but he's a light to the Gentile. However, not all the people of Israel are going to be saved, and not all of the Gentiles are going to be saved. But there will be people saved from 
Israel and from Gentiles. They will be saved from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. So whenever we go back to our passage in Isaiah, and we see where he says here, that not all, though Israel be not gathered, if we speaking in the term of the nation of Israel, the physical Israel, though all them are not gathered, the ones who are preserved are the ones who will be restored. And I will give thee also a light to the Gentiles. So not only the preserved of the Jews or the Israels, Israelites, but the preserved of the Gentiles. Now, again... To cooperate that, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Verse 6, it says, It's not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. What does our passage say? He says, he says that, then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. There are going to be some people that say, wait a minute, you're preaching all this stuff, but it's the word of God has fallen. Not all of Israel are being saved. Not all of Israel is being saved. That's the purpose of Romans chapter 9. Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9 is to prove election, individual election, not national election, individual election to those hearers. He's saying, listen, you've got it all wrong. It never was intended that every person in Israel be saved. Only the preserved of Israel. Only the remnant of Israel. Only the elect of Israel shall be saved. And he said, we have had it wrong all these years. We thought it was because of our physical person that we were going to be saved, but it's not. It's the spiritual that's going to be saved. The spiritual is... But here we go. Keep on reading here. Not as though the Word of God had taken none effect. So we know by this, God's Word did not do something in vain or for naught. Our understanding of it might make it look like that, or we might be included in the number of people for whom this was not intended, and therefore, any preaching is for naught is in vain because it's never going to change their heart. It's never going to cause them to be born again. It's never going to cause them to be saved. It doesn't in the elect either. Only the Spirit of God does that. But what my point is, is that all the preaching is for the people of God that are the spiritual people of God. Not for the people out there, just the reprobate. But let's move on. He says, verse 7, well, verse 6, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So that means that there's an Israel that doesn't include all of Israel. But there is an Israel that includes some of Israel and some of the Gentiles. Look at verse 8. That this, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At that time, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, 
not of works, but of him that calleth. So that right there puts to bed anything that we are saved by anything that we do. Or that we are elected by anything we do. Some people say that we're elected. God looks down the corridor of time and sees us and elects us because he sees us choose him. The Bible says here that we were chosen not according to anything that we had done, good or bad. So God doesn't look and choose us according to anything that we do of works. Anything. God chose us of his own good pleasure. If I'm a child of grace, I'm a child of grace by God's good pleasure, and there is no reason for it other than his good pleasure. He says, It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. Why shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he, ha uh, he hardeneth. Thou wilt say unto me, Why doth thou still find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to that which formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? <coughs> what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known his riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles. As he saith in Osee, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah, Isaiah, also cried concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the seas, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, Except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained a righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness have not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So here we see that the argument of Paul was that election includes some of Israel and some of the Gentiles. Not all of them, but whenever they all are gathered, they all make up the Israel of God. We see over in um, um, I think it's in chapter 11. Yes, chapter 11. He said... I say, hath God cast his away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, tried to God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Now he cast away Israel that he didn't know, but he, cast, he, he didn't cast away the people that he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith in Elias, how he made intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. 
But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men whom have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So there is a people of God according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not attained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath attained it. And the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall salvation has come unto the Gentiles. For to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are of my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling world, what shall be the receiving of them but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou be a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. But not high-minded, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell. Severity but uh, toward thee, goodness, if thou continuest in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still and un belief shall be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again for if thou wert cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree how much more shall these which be the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree for I would not brethren that ye should be ignorant of the, the mystery lest ye should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part has happened to Israel and to the fullness of the Gentiles be come in and so all Israel shall be saved. Now I read all of that to give you the context of Paul's argument that it is by election, but it is Jesus Christ who has saved all of Israel. He hasn't, the argument of Paul was the word of God has not been made void. It hasn't been for naught. Jesus is accomplishing everything. All of Israel what does it say? Shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Now, back to our passage, he, he says. He says, Then said I, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. He said, my judgment is from the Lord and my work is with my... I'm coming to do that. My intent was never to save all of physical Israel. The all Israel that's going to be saved is all of the ones preserved of God. Now, and now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb 
to be his servant, to bring Jacob again. Isn't that what we just read? Chapter 9, to bring back Jacob. To save, uh, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in thine eyes, O Lord, and my God shall be my strength. As he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved Israel. I will also give thee for a life to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Then verse 7, it says, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and rise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. So here, brethren, we see before us the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work. We see Jesus Christ being the perfect servant, sent of God, to accomplish all that God had given him to do, and that in the volume of the book, both old and new, it's written of him and his work. It's written of his salvation. All of this is to give his people comfort and peace uh, in himself and what he has done. And I pray that it's been a comfort to you guys as well this morning. All right, does anybody have any questions or any comments or any corrections? Anybody have anything? Should I say, again, any prayer requests or anything? Lord, we once again thank you today for your mercy and grace upon us. We thank you for the beauty that is in Christ Jesus. We thank you for all that you've done, all that you will do in the future for us. We look forward to that day that we come to be with you. We put off these garments of flesh and put on that robe of righteousness, that spiritual body that you have given to us. Father, we are so grateful that you have called your people, and that you have faithfully uh, carried out your work. And Lord, we know that nothing can be put to it or taken away from it, as we uh, learned a few weeks ago. We know, Father, that everything that you say is true, and that your word is like a a strong sword, and it's going to divide the heart, the mind, the soul, the bone, the marrow. It's going to come in deep, and it's going to divide us. That which is false will be made false and shown to be false. That which is true will stand. We know, Father, that whenever it comes in, it will judge us. And if we be found in Christ, the ruling of justified on the grounds of Christ's death will be heard for all those whom the Lord has saved. And so, Father, we're so grateful once again to be here, to be able to proclaim your gospel And we ask, Lord, that you'd be with us as we leave this place. I pray for my daughter, Kaylin, this morning, and ask, Lord, that if it be your will, that you grant her um, relief from her sickness. Uh, Lord, I pray for this this man that has contacted us from Africa. Lord, I pray that you'd be with him and with his family, especially as they have now stood stood up publicly amongst the uh, Islamic uh, mosque where they once worshipped. 
and have uh, declared their leaving the mosque and have now uh, professed faith in Christ Jesus. And Lord, as their family will probably be uh, under scrutiny and persecution by that community, Lord, I pray that you would keep them safe. I would pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow him in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and that you would encourage him. And that you would uh, be with this family as well, Lord, that you might keep them safe and that you might uh, help him to be uh, the shepherd of his family as he shares with them the things of God. And Lord, I just ask now that you just be uh, with that whole community, Lord, that if they're... We know that you say in your word that you have people in every city. And even in a small, run-down village, that's what seems to be where he lives now. Lord, we know that you have people there and that you will raise up your people. You are the good shepherd and you will find your sheep. You will lead them home and they will follow you. And so, Father, Lord, we pray uh, for the success of the gospel to come even to Zambia, Africa, uh, in this lowly little place in the southernmost part of such a great big country. Uh, continent, Lord, that seems to be insignificant to many people, but Lord, you have people there, and we know that they cannot hide, that they will not be uh, kept captive by other religions, that as you call them out, they come. Your people shall be willing in the day of thy power, and we know that to be true, so we pray, Lord, the success of your uh, gospel, and we proclaim the glory that it brings to you. In and through it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.